Good afternoon. It is one o'clock. I'm Jacqueline LaBelle in downtown London. It's overcast and five degrees. Ontario Social Services Minister says she'll consult with parents on how to introduce needs-based funding into the new autism program. Parents of children with autism have been protesting the plan announced by Lisa McLeod last month, saying funding should be based on need and not age or family income. Today, McLeod announced that there will be changes to the program and she will look at ways to offer extra supports based on the need of the child. She says previously announced caps of $20,000 per year for children under six and $5,000 for children over six remain, but they will no longer be income tested. Meantime, Premier Doug Ford began his day with a stop in southwestern Ontario. Ford's in Woodstock today to take part in a roundtable discussion with local agriculture and agri-food leaders. A big decision about London's transit priorities is just days away. City councillors will hear staff recommendations on which projects to put forward for government funding on Monday before deciding the future of bus rapid transit on Tuesday. Councillors have lots to think about after a public meeting drew about 200 people to Centennial Hall last night. While almost all people argued for a better transit system, people had varying opinions on which BRT components should be supported. Stephen Turner, Councillor for Ward 11, says time's running out to decide on which projects will be put forward for more than $370 million in senior government funding. There absolutely is a time horizon. Uh, the federal funds have to be spent by 2028. So they, they disappear after that. Uh, as much as, as Mayor Fontana wanted to say that, uh, that that's not the case, it is absolutely the case. Uh, there, there is a time uh, associated with this. Former London Mayor Joe Fontana was one of the participants in the public meeting. He railed against BRT's Northern Connection and said the city could get funding back later down the road. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is responding to a bombshell interview his former cabinet minister Jane Philpott gave to McLean's magazine. Philpott says there is, quote, much more to the story of the SNC-Lavalin affair that should be told. Trudeau says he's pleased by the work of the Commons Justice Committee, suggesting he's gone as far as necessary in waiving cabinet confidences and solicitor-client privilege to get to the bottom of the controversy. Philpott resigned in support of former Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould, who claims she felt pressure to help the construction company avoid a criminal trial on charges related to its business in Libya. One of Ontario's police watchdogs says strip searches have become routine in far too many cases. In a special report today, the Office of the Independent Police Review Director says strip search procedures are inconsistent. The report finds justification to do them is frequently lacking and data collection inadequate. In all, police in Ontario conduct more than 22,000 strip searches a year. The death toll in Mozambique from Cyclone Idai stands at 200, but emergency workers say it will continue to rise as floodwaters recede. Portugal sending an intervention task force to help search for survivors. Hervé Verussel with the United Nations World Food Program says aid teams cannot get supplies in at the moment due to the appalling weather conditions. The problem that we have is more the access than we can have the food coming, but then we have a problem of distribution of that food to people because most of the people are basically on a rooftop or in, in a place where we cannot access by, by road. Aid groups are working nonstop to rescue families clinging to tree branches and rooftops for safety from the surging waters. You're listening to 980 CFPL. On the show today, we're going to do what we try to do best, cover all kinds of different things. And I mean, I mean different today. New Zealand gun laws, BRT, chugga-chugga-choo-choo, or chugga-chugga-chugga, 
choo-choo or chugga-chugga-chugga-chugga. This is a thing. Also, Florida man and your birthday. This has become a Google exercise. If you go to any kind of Google search engine and you type in Florida man and your birthday, you will then go to the top story that appears and and you read that and it's your connection to Florida man. I don't know if you know the Florida man stories. They they make fun of these on all kinds of things. The show Atlanta made fun of Florida man. Tony Kornheiser makes fun of Florida man. I think he does Florida man Friday. It just goes to show you how many weird things happen in Florida. There was a story years and years and years ago, and this just kind of outlines Florida man. And it took place in, I don't know, Tallahassee or Jacksonville, a city in Florida. There was a guy who wanted to break into a liquor store. And so he decided that liquor stores were pretty tough to get into because the glass is impenetrable and there was a lock on the front door. He waited for this liquor store to close and then he grabbed a massive cinder block and he lugged that cinder block who knows how far. He didn't have a car. I don't know how he was going to get away anyway. He lugs this cinder block all the way to the liquor store from his house and then goes up to the window and throws the cinder block at the window. It hits the window or the bars on the outside or whatever this had, and it ricochets back, hits him, and knocks him out. How high did you have to throw that cinder block for it to come back and hit you in the head? I don't know, but that's Florida Man right there in a nutshell. And since then, we've had stories about Florida Man, so... I played the game, I googled Florida man with my birthday, and I got alligator abuse. Can I do this again? I don't even want to read that story. Florida man arrested and charged with alligator abuse. Is that a specific charge in Florida? No, I'm going to put my phone over there. I don't want to read that story. No, thank you. Some headlines just say enough. We'll try and get through some headlines into some deeper stuff throughout the show. We are going to talk about Misinformation Day. This is a thing. And we're going to talk to the guy who has been instrumental in creating Misinformation Day. His name is Jevin West, and he's out on the West Coast. No real connection there. His name is West. He lives on the West Coast. It's like when Jared Knight played for the London Knights. What are the odds? What if Jared Knight played for the Kitchener Rangers? You had to be somebody like Tom Canada. He used to play for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. He could play for any team in the CFL. His last name was Canada. Worked out beautifully. We're going to talk about what a shared equity mortgage is because as much as a few things came out of the federal budget, and it's the same kind of stuff each and every year, here's the people that we want to have vote for us, especially in an election year. But something interesting did come up. And this has come up on London Live a few times. The idea that being a first-time homebuyer is getting really hard, like really hard, and almost unfair. So now we've got something called a shared equity mortgage. So we're going to dig into what this actually is, because I always get worried. And there was a mortgage that was available years ago, and you could divide it into a couple of things. So you paid part of your principal at a certain interest rate, you paid another part at a different interest rate, and then you paid a little bit more from like a a second or third party lender at a higher interest rate. And that kind of gets tricky. And I don't know if this is 
that kind of a setup, but we're going to find out more about a shared equity mortgage in about an hour from now. And we are also going to talk about the London Knights. We're going to give you a chance to win Knights tickets. I don't know if you've seen a little something from Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. If you subscribe to The Athletic, you probably have. But if not, don't worry, because we're going to talk with Scott Wheeler himself. Scott has basically run some numbers. And you know the success that the London Knights have had. Even if you aren't a hockey fan, you hear about them. Oh, are the London Knights good? Yeah, yeah they're good. They're always good. At least that's the way they, they operate. They've been consistently good for a long time. Well, Scott Wheeler has broken it down. He has taken every player who's been drafted by an NHL team since 2003. And he has counted up where they came from, so what team developed them, not just in the OHL, around the world. So we're talking every single team in the world. And he has looked at how many games played each developmental team, and that's what the London Knights are, they're a developmental team, they're a junior team. How many games played, players coming out of that organization have played in the NHL? And I'll just read you the top three. Number three... U.S. National Development Team program, but uh, let's see. Uh, we'll talk more about that later. I, I don't. They shouldn't be included in this, but anyway. Uh, U.S. National Development Team program: five thousand six hundred and twenty games played. Oh, that's pretty good. So that's number three. Number two, the Kitchener Rangers, very good organization: five thousand seven hundred and thirty-three. Well, that's very impressive. And then number one, the London Knights. At 10,343 games. So if you take this even, you know, not paying any attention to the stats, just think about it this way. If you had 10,343 of something and the closest competitor to you had 5,700, that's unbelievable. That's, That's improbable. But that's the truth. So that's the job that the Knights are doing, developing players to go and play in the National Hockey League identifying them, developing them, it's pretty wild. It's one of the reasons why they're the number one seed in the West going into the playoffs this year. Speaking of seedings, March Madness is underway. Everybody can enjoy the next 45 minutes to an hour. No brackets have been busted, but they'll start being busted. It's just fun to play along. We are going to talk about New Zealand gun laws because they said they would make some changes, and they have. And we're going to outline what those are and where they stem from. And the other thing that we're going to get to in just a couple of minutes is BRT. Because yesterday, the public participation meeting was held, and I don't want to be skeptical, but I am. You know, I I hope that this was a brainstorming-type session. We'll talk with Andrew Graham, 980 CFPL reporter, in about five minutes, and we'll get his thoughts on the number of people that were there and some of the sentiments that were expressed. Because seriously, uh, this can sometimes just be, hey, who has a complaint? Step to the microphone, please. And nothing really gets done. So I don't know whether this was just one of those things that you have to do, and then the public gets their say, and then you just do what it is that you were going to set out to do in the first place. That's kind of the way things should work. You know, the public has input. Ultimately, though, City Council makes the decision. So we'll talk about BRT. I want to get to an email that came in late on the show yesterday. So those two things, gun laws in New Zealand and BRT coming up. And while we're getting set to take our first break on London Live, here's something I want you to think about. This is, I think it started on Reddit. It's another online thing. 
And it doesn't involve alligator abuse in any way. When someone says chugga-chugga-choo-choo or chugga-choo-choo or chugga-chugga-chugga-choo-choo, this is actually a debate that is quite wide-ranging. We're going to bring it up on London Live right now. How many chuggas are there in the choo-choo? Chugga-chugga-choo-choo? Are there, are there three? Are there four? Is there just one? Email Mike at 980CFPL if you'd like to weigh in on the chugga-chugga-choo-choo debate. If not, there will be a posting somewhere where you can give your ideas. We'll take our first break. Up next, some lines from Ed Holder, London Mayor. We'll hear from 980CFPL reporter Andrew Graham, and we'll talk BRT, and we'll also take a look at what New Zealand is doing. Credit this country. They are actually taking action. They said they would, and they did. Can North America say that in any way? No. Not even close. Not even close. And I'm not pointing fingers at the United States. Canada's just as bad. Just as bad. We have different gun laws, yes, but just as bad when it comes to getting things done. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Okay, I didn't think the chugga-chugga-choo-choo would take off quite how it has, but Kyle introduced something different. I thought one, two, three, four, how many chuggas before the choo-choo? Kyle says it's eight to two. It's chugga-chugga, 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 choo-choo. Kyle, thank you for that. Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. So now we're anywhere between one and eight. We don't need emails that say 64, just with the hope that I go chugga-chugga 64 times. I'll just say 64. No. Uh, Alan says, uh, chugga chugga, who gives a damn? (laughs) People debating this have too much time on their hands. Yes, it is a first world problem. Alan, you're exactly right. Okay, let's get into some things that certainly do have merit. And one of those is New Zealand gun laws, and they are instituting a buyback program And we'll touch on this because immediately people are going to say, yeah, get out of here with your buyback program. That doesn't get the wrong guns off the street. Well, what they're doing is looking south and they're looking at Australia. And I want to go through some of the numbers on the Australian buyback program and what that did. Because Australia is one of those leaders in gun control. They had one incident and went, this isn't happening anymore. And they haven't had an incident since because of what they did. And yet we go, hmm. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And nothing gets done. So that's in just about three, four minutes. But let's tackle BRT for just a moment. 980 CFPL reporter Andrew Graham was there yesterday at the public participation meeting and is here today on London Live. Andrew, kind of set the scene. Did this take place in the big part of Centennial Hall? It was in the big part of Centennial Hall, yeah, in the whole main stage area there, yeah. So a lot of people could be there. How full was it? Well, there were a few hundred people, I'd guess, but, you know, Centennial Hall is a massive, massive area. So, I mean, they seat over a thousand people. So a couple hundred people doesn't look that big. If you look at my photo online, uh, the, the front rows is a lot of empty seats, but still hundreds of people were there. More than 12. More more than 12. More than a dozen, for sure. And sometimes on issues, if you have a public participation meeting, you'll have 12 people show up and they'll express whatever it is they want to express. Let's look at what they did express yesterday in terms of complaining versus here's an idea. How much of the here's an idea did you hear? I mean, it's hard to really pinpoint, but there was a lot of 
complaints. I mean, everyone really advocated for better transit, but the question was how. Now, we had some ideas. For example, people were bringing up the idea of microtransit. That's like minibuses, Uber rides, that sort of stuff. Uh, ring roads, road widenings, those sort of ideas. But the thing you have to remember is we had these 19 potential transit projects, and those are the only ones that are eligible for government funding from the provincial government, from the federal government. So, even if those ideas, we still have to narrow it down to choosing between these 19. And that's what obviously is going to be up to city council. Did people target those ideas? Were they at least on topic for the most part when they made these presentations? Yeah, I mean, of course, the first five ideas are directly inspired from bus rapid transit. So there was like the North Connection, the West Connection, East London Link. A lot of people would say, I'm for four of the routes, but I don't like the North Connection. Or I'm for these routes, but I don't like the downtown loop. So it's more kind of picking away at which routes they liked. As for the other ideas, I mean, most people were supportive of the Adelaide underpass, so things like that people were on board with. But as for the routes themselves, the BRT-inspired routes, those were kind of, I think they got the most focus. Okay, and you wonder how much of that comes from just personal, here's how it would affect me. And that's maybe what we have to look above and beyond. Andrew, thanks so much for, for painting the picture of what that was like. Public participation meeting, Andrew Graham, 980 CFPL reporter. Now, in terms of of what has to be looked at here, it does have to get away from just how it would affect you. And, you know, there were people who kind of tweeted things saying, oh, this person lives in this part of the city and they don't see a use for BRT at all. You know, that person doesn't need to make that presentation. You know, that's that's not going to help in the greater decision-making process. Trevor sent an email late yesterday on the show and said the objections to rapid transit are for the one the city was pretty dishonest throughout the whole process. And that's what he found. He says another issue was getting caught with shoddy cost projections, like, say, the original tunnel they wanted, took people to independently prove this tunnel would cost many, many, many times more than what the city stated. Ironically, the $13 million spent already, as the councillor had pointed out in a clip that we played yesterday from Ward 12 councillor Elizabeth Peloza, pointed out, included the cost of estimating the tunnel so far off, uh, think the rest of the costs are accurate or even close to accurate. It says people are getting tired of these social product projects. As an example, cities all over the world are now getting rid of bike lanes. They realize they cause huge problems and are socially destructive. They have to remove them. London is actively building them at the moment. On my street, he says White Oak Road, the city installed bike lanes a couple of years ago. Traffic on the street normally drove about the speed limit. You'd never see a heavy truck on the road. After they installed the bike lanes, traffic now drives well in excess of the speed limit. In every minute, a heavy truck drives by day and night, wiped out $40,000 value off the houses on the street, ruined people's lives. He says it's too noisy to use the yard. Canada Post canceled the mail delivery because the street is too dangerous. To top it all off, cyclists won't bike on White Oak Road anymore because they find that too dangerous. If they'd left things alone, conditions would have been better for bikes as well. They instead wasted hundreds of thousands, caused more than a million worth of damages to residents, ruined some lives, made the road not safe for cyclists. Will BRT be any different, or will it greatly harm a lot of people and prove of little benefit? So, Trevor, thanks for sending that in, because, you know, that sure goes to some of the frustration. Ultimately, though, It is the city council that does have to make these decisions. They can get the input from public, and if it is just complaints about, well, I don't like the way this route works, or I don't like where this drop-off or pickup point is going to be, okay, that's but that's small potatoes stuff. That's stuff that is going to be looked at 
not by just city councilors, but you're going to have people who know how to build these routes looking at these routes and saying, well, here's where it has to be and this is why. So we have to do something. What do we do? We're still left with that ultimate question. How do we bring it in? And that's that's a hurdle that seems to be really high, that we seem to have trouble getting over. Now, London Mayor Ed Holder appeared on the Craig Needles show this morning. I want to take you back to one of the questions that Craig asked and the answer that Mayor Holder gave. Here is Craig Needles. Uh, the former mayor of London, Joe Fontana, said, hey, we shouldn't be doing this at all. He doesn't believe there's a clock as far as getting the money from the feds in the province to do these transit projects. He believes that money will be there whenever we're ready to do them. Do you agree can with I, his I assessment? T- can I touch on that? I didn't Absolutely. Can I touch on that? Uh, see, to me, the issue is, is, is really clear. This, uh, this uh, amount of money, which uh, is some $370 million between the provincial and federal governments with, uh, with the balance being supported by the municipal government, uh, that's specific transit-related uh, funding. And uh, from time to time, uh, different levels of government will provide, uh, will provide monies for transportation, just like they would for housing supports and the like. So not uncommon, because no municipality can do this alone. But certainly, uh, we don't want to suggest that, uh, that uh, if we don't take advantage of this money, that somehow when we've decided it's time again, we can just call up our provincial and federal friends and say, look, uh, we need some extra help here. Can, are, are you ready? It doesn't work that way. Uh, I mean, that's why they have budgets, uh, federally and provincially, where they will announce certain uh, initiatives. Uh, this initiative started... Uh, uh, in terms of uh, formal funding, potential year and a half ago. But as you know, uh, the, uh, the the prior council who supported the full bus rapid transit project in its entirety, um, they it never got off the ground. And uh, with the new council, I mean, it it had it had a lot of uh, background support from city staff, and they did a tremendous amount of work. But it, it, none of the initiatives had uh, had really taken hold, and so uh, it had never received provincial or federal funding. Uh, it was it was it went quiet at the provincial level with the new election. Uh, when I went to see the premier, uh, that was the very first thing we spoke of was getting the 170 million provincial funding back on the table. Uh, that took some weeks, but uh, we had received confirmation. Uh, you might recall just before the state of the city address um, uh, back in in late January. All to say. Uh, so that comes from London Mayor Ed Holder and his thoughts on what was stated by former London Mayor Joe Fontana, and then the idea that, and what you hear out of this is, the money's there, we have to use it. And now it's just about figuring that out. To close off the discussion on this, it's always great to get thoughts from Bill Brock because he follows this so closely. Bill, your thoughts as we head into yet another day of, I don't even know whether to call it progress, but yet another day of maybe some progress on BRT. Mike, at the 11th hour, they hold a meeting, and people get to put in their position on a a list of 19 items. They've never had a full discussion with the citizens and the new elected councillors as to what their positions are that they can answer questions of the public. This is all going to go through to the 11th hour next week. They're going to make a decision. And you know the biggest thing they missed? is does it make it better for the customer? On the public record, it's all kinds of information that shows the city keeps changing their mind. In November or December 2017, the only time for uh, counting towards uh, faster was while on the BRT. January 1st, they changed it 
from origin to destination. It's going to be slower. It's going to take longer. And people are going to walk away from it because it's not a faster service. So all this talk that's going on, they've missed the biggest part, having an honest, open discussion with all of the citizens to tell them how it's going to make it better. The biggest loss is the customer. They don't care. Now, in doing that build, yeah. how could how would we be able to organize that, though? Because that's, that's my concern in all of this, that at least here we have a number of projects laid out, 19 projects. You can give your thoughts on that. But you wanted you wanted to kind of go back to the beginning? Is that what you were looking no, at? No, no. But, but what's missing, Mike, is, yes, there are the 19 projects. But if you look at the report that the staff gave to them yesterday, there's a data sheet in there that wasn't there before. Nobody has seen it, and it was on the agenda about uh, what the federal government and that wants. We've never seen it. We've never discussed it. What's missing is that they come with the 19 positions, but the, the staff's position is to tweak, to tweak the proposed system which the citizens rejected. So they're already compromised, and that all I'm saying is they didn't do it. They didn't have the discussions and lay the cards, and they've changed, kept changing their mind. So here we are in the 11th hour, and what was said this morning was, and I think it was Councillor Turner, all the talk in the previous council, this council has had no discussions. They've just rushed it through, and in the next week they're going to have to make decisions. And the and we as the citizens that elected them don't even know their position. And that what is it true. Is we yeah we That's we don't. Trouble. I don't feel we have a clear picture in all this. Bill, thanks so much for the call. Got to run for news. News is on the way next with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio nine eighty CFPL. Coming up in the next half hour should be an interesting conversation with Jevin West. We're going to talk about something that passed by this week, but it's new, and it'll come around again. It may come around every March 19th. I don't know. It was March 19th this year. It was Misinfo Day. And what does it do? Well, it basically encouraged high school students to take a look at things that they read and try and determine what's real, what's not. So we know that we have fake stuff that is posted online. That's why if you come to Global News Radio, we can promise the stuff on there is real. Uh, that's, that's not any issue at all. But if you just look at something on Facebook or linked on some other website, even links on Twitter... There isn't always a guarantee that what you're reading is real. Sometimes it'll look really neat, and then you notice the word promoted right nearby, which means this is advertising, and something else could be, well, this is just clickbait. Sometimes things are out-and-out fake. So we'll talk about Miss Info Day, how it went, and whether this thing has a future with Jevin West in just a moment. Thanks for all the thoughts on BRT. I do want to take just a moment and outline the latest on a story that we've been following. And that is the story out of New Zealand. We went to New Zealand on Monday. Unfortunately, 50 people lost their lives. 40 others were injured. This was an attack that never needed to take place. Some guy just wanted to cause chaos. And unfortunately, that's exactly what took place. 
However, New Zealand has acted very quickly, and they have announced that they're going to ban assault rifles outright in New Zealand. And they are also implementing a buyback program for weapons. They estimate that in New Zealand, there are 1.2 million guns in circulation. And that winds up being one for every three people. And what they're looking at is a buyback program that would cost between $100 million and $200 million. And initially, what you, what you hear is, ah, buyback program. Who's going to sell back their guns? Well, some people aren't going to. Some people use them legally. And you know what? They should be able to hunt. They should be able. But if you are looking to get guns out of the public, this is something that other countries have tried. Now, if we look to Australia, they've done this a couple of times. Australia had a tragedy and immediately said, this isn't going to happen again. And in 1996, they put together the National Firearms Buyback Program. And what do you think? They get 10, 15, 20 guns, 100 guns, 1,000 guns. They got 660,959 firearms. Long guns, mostly semi-automatic rifles, shotguns, both non-pump action and pump action shotguns, military-type semi-automatic rifles, and they were paid compensation for it. It was expected to cost $500 million. Um, it probably worked out somewhere around there. Now, they did another buyback in 2017 and made it possible for individuals to surrender what they now have as illegal firearms, and they destroyed the weapons. So New Zealand maybe is looking at Australia saying, hey, if they could do it, and they haven't had a tragedy like that since, maybe we can do it too. They're trying something, and that's what I want to give them credit for. They're trying something. I'm not saying get all guns out of circulation. But do something, because so often we get caught up in the politics of it and nothing gets done. People stepped out of the way here. They got out of the way and they got something done in New Zealand. And they do deserve credit for that. I mean, I don't know if they hold workshops on how to run government, but we could certainly send a few people to one of those workshops. This is how you get something done. What have been the complaints even about something as small, and really it is, it might seem big to us, but as small as BRT? What are we getting from them there? We, no progress. It's getting bogged down again. Bob, we've got about 60 seconds, but they're all yours. Yeah, Mike, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a great thing that uh, countries are going to try to uh, lower the... Uh number of firearms. Well, right now it's just New Zealand. Yeah, well, exactly, and and I've heard of this happening. In well, they've, yeah, Argentina's done it, yeah. Brazil has done it, yes. However, um, it's not, it's like when, when we talk about the issue at hand here, what happened in New Zealand, the individual was from Australia, and he got assault rifles, right? Mm-hmm. And it just comes down to the same thing. It, he got him in New Zealand, though, as far as we know. Right, okay. Uh but the thing is, that doesn't really matter because you can get you can get uh, uh, black market um, weapons anywhere. Oh, sure. Like, you can, like the thing is, you can put all these things in place, but we're really not still dealing with the issue at hand, and that is the individuals 
who are committing these crimes and these terrorist acts, all right, they're going to get their weapons regardless of laws put implemented by governments. Now, I've been reading the Great Replacement, um, uh, what the heck they call it, the, uh, the that the shooter left. Um, what is his manifesto? His manifesto, yes, that's what I'm, I'm referring to. And it's uh, 74 pages. I'm about two-thirds through it. What do you think of it? And, well, I'll tell you, it's a great insight to how a mind like this works. So it's, in a, in a sense, it gives us a better opportunity to understand how individuals, and the warning signs of individuals who are thinking about doing this. Um, so if there's any positive out of this tragedy, that, that's it. So maybe that needs to be the focus more so than gun control in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like we can put all, like I said, put all the laws you want, but there's something going on with individuals who are radicalized, and we have to, and, and, and in many areas of our planet today, and, and many different ethnic backgrounds. So again, we have to start focusing on that issue and why these people are turning, in, you know, to these sides and committing their terrorist acts. Bob, as uh, usual, you make a very valid point. And, and how we do it, again, this seems to be the question of the day. How? Yeah. And I don't know that we quite have the answer just yet. we got to run, Bob. Thanks for the call. Okay, Mike. Take care. Take care. We'll take a break. Up next, we are going to get into Misinfo Day. Not This is not like Miss Teen Canada. This is not Miss... Info Day. This is Misinformation Day and something that was started out west in the U.S. We'll give you details next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Misinformation. It happens. Sometimes it's by error. But more and more with the world we live in, it can be by design. Misinformation. Be nice if it was just a beauty pageant. Not even close. We've heard the stories of things like Russian troll factories. We have seen stories about people working in any country anywhere whose job it was to create things that looked fake. Well, something interesting has taken place this week. And that something is Misinfo Day. Jevin West... And his colleague at the University of Washington, Carl Bergstrom, researched information and took a look at disinformation and looked at ways that they could maybe train the rest of us on how to be more informed when we're reading things. They had put together a class, and it's, it's pretty well known. They've got a website along with it. It's called Calling BS. And most recently, they have created a tool, and they've launched it, and it informs people about new technology that can create fake images of people who don't exist. That's where we're getting to in the misinformation world. Um, there's a new game because of this. You may have played it already. It's called Which Face is Real? Jevin West joins us now on London Live. Jevin, your work is phenomenal. Congratulations on that, first off. Well, thanks, Mike, and thanks for having me on. And what a great introduction! I, I, you know, I wish it was a beauty pageant as well, but unfortunately, I think it's it wouldn't be. Uh, it's not quite that. So, but maybe maybe eventually we'll have a beauty pageant once we figure it all out. Well, if anybody could do it, I think you guys could pull that off. That that would be good. Let's go into disinformation and maybe you know how you came across the idea that we really needed to have a class or we really needed to have a destination. 
to raise some issues about this. Where were you when that kind of started to come together? Yeah, so this was something that Carl, my colleague, and I have been talking about actually for years, and it was before the big um, sort of movement of, of, of misinformation in the public vernacular. Because now, I mean, you look on dictionary.com and it's the word of the year, you know, in the last three years, you know, or some variants of it, like fake news or, or disinformation. But, but before this sort of everyone took off, we, we really wanted just to spend a class just thinking about how to, you know, teach students how to critically reason with data and statistics and, and to sort of, you know, be a little bit more aware of the kinds of ways they can be tricked in online environments, just like in the real environments. But, you know, since we spend probably more than 50% of our time or whoever knows how long, a lot of our lives are spent online. And there's, there's ways in which you can, you can, you know, hoodwink people in, way, in ways that are different than we could sort of even in the physical world. We're talking with Professor Jevin West, Assistant Professor at Data Lab of iSchool at the University of Washington. And we're talking about misinformation. You have turned this first off into a class. If someone were to take your class, what sorts of things would they be learning about? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, we try to make as much of our content free online as, as we can, just as we have time, we'll put new videos out, and we'll be creating a MOOC, these sort of massive online courses that anyone can take. Again, we want to keep it free and, and make this content available. But the course at our university, you know, sells out with, you know, as soon as registration's open, it fills with, you know, the 160-seat class fills within a minute. And what we do in this class is we, we walk through things. We do talk about fake news, um, but one of our big things in the class is to teach people how to sort of question data specifically, data and statistics and AI, you know, artificial intelligence, in the same ways that they question maybe a, a car salesman or something, even though not our call, all, all car salesmen are, are, are trying to trick you, but that's sort of what people associate with someone that might be BSing you. Um, but, but the classes, it goes through even some issues in, in science. So even though I have this love affair with science, there are issues within science that we want people to be aware of. And also we talk about even the philosophy of BS. It turns out there are philosophers like Harry Frankfurt at Yale who, who wrote an entire book on this. So, so we, we, we go from philosophy, sociology, we talk about technology, policies, we talk about the media environment, all sorts of things. So we have you know 50 hours of lectures that people can check out if they'd like. Amazing. Professor Jevin West with us from the University of Washington. So Misinfo Day, now it has been declared a day. Was this the first <laughs> annual Misinfo Day? It is. It is the very first one. And we had to keep it small because, you know, when you organize these big events, we wanted to, you know, we, we could have had probably a thousand high school students, but this was geared towards high school students specifically so that they could spend a day thinking about this. And so having a day where they, well, they, they actually came to campus and we had professors from around campus and we had, we had fact checkers from Snopes and we had all sorts of different guests and volunteers. And we brought these high school students from around the state of Washington to spend a day thinking about fact checking, thinking about things like confirmation bias, our biases that make us believe things. And, and throughout that day, and, and we think it went actually great. We've been getting tons of great feedback from the teachers. We'll probably expand it next year. And we have other universities that are going to join us probably next year. So it could eventually become an actual day that we devote to becoming smarter consumers of information. And March 19th, that looks like the annual day? 
Possibly. I hope it is because it works well, at least on our university, where we're in finals week and we actually have classrooms available. So, so uh, yeah, you're right. It started on March 10th night. Maybe that's what's going to be, maybe. <laughs> we're talking with Professor Jevin West from the University of Washington. One last thing before we let you go. I know that you teach an entire course on this, but if we could get just a, a tip or two on what to watch out for, how to get that BS meter going off, what should we be looking for? Yeah, I mean, just some of the basic things are question your source, like who's telling me this? You know, how do they know it? What do they have to gain from it? You know, corroborating and triangulating information. So if you hear something on one site, go check other sites. Open some tabs in your browser. You know, some of the basic things actually work really well. I mean, there are all sorts of little tricky things in images and, and statistics and, 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 and in sort of all, all the sort of nefarious things that people can do. And honest, honestly, honest things. And we teach those in the class. But just, just questioning your source and digging to the source I think is good. But also, I, I, just to leave you with one last thing is, that to, to not think that everything's false out there. That's the only fear I have is in this class that we, we, we don't want the students to think that everything is, is you know, nothing's true out there. There is truth. We just have to work a little harder nowadays. Well said. Well, Professor West, thank you so much for taking some time out for us. Thank you for creating certainly awareness about this to have us thinking about it a little bit more. Well, thanks, Mike, for having me, and happy to get on any time and, and, and go fight the good fight in journalism, and that's, that's, I'm a huge fan of journalism. So, All right. Well, we really appreciate that. Have yourself a great day. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Professor Jevin West from University of Washington. So, yeah, that's, that is all it takes. I mean, we get so caught up in feeds now that you just read the headlines in feeds. Oh, let me see. Okay. And you just fire through all of the stuff. And we can create opinions based on headlines. And that's maybe one of the more dangerous things. When Twitter crunched everything down to 140 characters, now it's 280 characters, that's still not a lot of words. That really kind of moved us into that thing where, yeah, I just take a little bit and I form a broad-based opinion based on those few words. Never mind, I'm not reading anybody's quotes. I'm not looking at any reaction. I'm just looking at a very tiny opinion or a tiny headline or something that has a link that I'm never going to click to to read more about it. And I don't know how we get out of it because we're conditioned to accept that now. But that's where our world sits. So, yeah, you do have to kind of step back every once in a while. And then you've got people who just pontificate about fake news and things like that. Well, it's our responsibility to make sure we're getting our news from the best sources. We'll be getting news from Jacqueline LaBelle, a great source, in just a couple of minutes. We'll let you know what else is coming up in Hour 2 of the program when we return. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Coming up in Hour 2, are you or do you know somebody who would like to own a home one day? You seen the average prices? You can cheer if you already own a home that, wow, look at the average price. Look at my property value. Yeah, that's not the way it is if you don't already own property. The numbers just keep getting bigger and bigger. Attaining a first home keeps getting harder and harder. Coming out of the federal budget, we heard something called the shared equity mortgage. We're going to investigate what that is. Plus, we'll talk about the beauty of the one-game winner-take-all, and we'll talk about what the London Knights have been doing and add some real hard math to it. Don't worry. The hard math's already been done for all of us. We'll just give the answers. It's London Live. We continue. Afternoons with Jacqueline LaBelle. 
in a moment. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We're going to talk some London Knights hockey a little later on. We're going to give you a chance to win tickets to go and see the London Knights this weekend. They play game one tomorrow night. They play game two on Sunday afternoon. And they did open up unclaimed season ticket holder tickets yesterday. So there are some seats even in the lower bowl. If you've never been able to buy a seat in the lower bowl, now's your opportunity. So... In conjunction with that, we're going to be investigating just how the London Knights have done as an organization over the last 16 years when it comes to producing NHLers, thanks to Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. He's put together a piece that has all kinds of data in it, and it suggests that the London Knights are not just the best producer of hockey talent in the world, they are head, shoulders, and maybe an entire rib cage above everybody else. I don't are they at naval level? If you're head and shoulders above everybody else, that's one thing. If you can get up to where your navel is, are we talking belt buckle? Maybe high knee? I don't know. They have in their stable of alumni. They have produced 10,343 NHL games played since 2003. Next on the list, Kitchener at 5,733. It's more than double. And then everybody else is after that. It's amazing. It's absolutely wild. Uh, One of the things that we'll get to is the U.S. National Development Team program. In the United States, they have a special program. And they look all around the United States, and they offer it up to the best of the best. So there are 300 and some million people in the United States. Of course, they're only looking for the young up-and-coming hockey players, but they can look anywhere in their country, okay? They can take the entire United States, and you look at how many players from that program are produced. You would think, well, every American, but it's not like that. In fact, it boils down to even fewer than the Kitchener Rangers. That's how impressive both London and Kitchener have been. But London is head, shoulders, rib cage, navel, and belt buckle above everybody else. So Scott Wheeler will join us, and he'll talk about how he came up with all of these numbers, just so we can kind of do a checkup and, and understand better where that came from. And we'll also talk with Knights Associate General Manager Rob Simpson about it. So some hockey talk in a little bit. The beauty of the one-game winner-take-all. I've got more evidence that we need more of these games. March Madness is underway now. Yale is playing LSU. You always feel for the Ivy League team when they hit this. It, it doesn't work out for them. They're not winning. But Michigan will play later on if, if you've got some Michigan fans in the house. Michigan State is a high seed this year. Should be a lot of fun. Duke provides Zion Williamson. Be a great tournament. Always is. But the one-game winner-take-all, we need more of that in sports. I'm convinced. And I'll have a story in about 10, 11 minutes when we give away some Knights tickets as to why that is and proof as to why we need that. Right now, we want to look back to the tabling of the federal budget because it came out earlier this week, and one of the items in it, 
was a shared equity mortgage because one of the issues that was addressed by the federal budget was first-time home buyers. We've started to look around and say, yeah, about buying a home in Vancouver or Toronto if you don't already own one. Yeah, yeah, about that. How are we going to get that done? Yeah, do you mind if uh, if I borrow uh, a million, a million two, at a three-bedroom I'm really interested in? That's kind of the way it is. So how do we make things easier for first-time homebuyers? Well, a shared equity mortgage has been brought up. We can't know the ins and outs of this, but fortunately we have good friends on London Live who do know the ins and outs of this. Michael Mullis is president of Mortgage Teacher and joins us now. Mr. Mullis, how are things on this Thursday? Oh, pretty good. Busy, busy, obviously, with the new news. Yeah, let's let's talk about how this works here. And we, of course, saw kind of a, a target by the federal budget for first-time homebuyers. What did you take away with regard to first-time homebuyers from the federal budget? Oddly enough, a lot of question marks. Okay. Uh, our, our industry put together some different proposals. We honestly thought for first-time homebuyers that we were going to see the comeback of the 30-year amortization. So that would allow our buyers to buy a little bit more, and that would be more of an impact of about you know, 250 to $300 a month on the average person, so that instead of affording you know, a house for 320 they can now buy for 400000 So those were some of the expectations we saw. Now this kind of new loan setup for first-time home buyers, I don't know if, if everyone exactly knows the, clear, the clarity of it, but it's something we haven't dealt with before. Okay. So... You know, CMHC is the government. They'll step in for a first-time home buyer and help people out with their premiums. But in this case, they're going to be able to offer a loan. If it's a new bill of a house, they can give you a 10% kind of loan. But it's a shared equity loan. And we don't know the basics of, you know, for example, if values go down. A shared equity program isn't something we've dealt with before in the past. Now, with that being said, BC has done, done a program in the past. And what happens, though, that's it's kind of different is – the market typically increases with purchases like this when something kicks in. So, for example, if there's a 10% loan, but there could be a 10% increases in home purchases at the same time. And so that's what one expectation that we might uh, kind of see and see how this works. And when we see increases in the market, does that not usually go hand in hand with a rise in average home price in the market? Well, that's exactly it. And that's where even the London and area down here, Mike, it's a little different because we're not seeing the slowdown effect of why these rules are coming in. So these rules are getting set for the other cities that we're seeing, obviously the bigger metro cities with Toronto and Vancouver, seeing a decrease in sales. But we're not seeing it locally here. So um, there's a lot of uh, places that are saying the market's going to be slow from now until September as far as the first-time home buyers, And this might even stimulate first-time home buyers with building. Because if they build, they can get up to the 10% rebate, or if it's an existing home, it's 5%. But in London, as we all know, and our real estate agents here, it's still a pretty hot market. There's still multiple offers. So not only is it an interesting, you know, it's interesting in the fall, but it's going to be really interesting here in London because I don't know if we're going to see that slowdown that they're predicting Canada-wide. We're talking with Michael Mollis, president of Mortgage Teacher, looking at shared equity mortgages and other topics with regard to first-time home buyers. You mentioned the amortization. Didn't we get as high as 40 years that, that was allowable at one point for amortization? 
Yeah, back in 2009, we had a 40-year amortization for a couple of years. And now that, that's back, it's kind of similar times we're running into. This is what we call an inverted bond. So way back in, um, in 2007, I remember this, the five-year fix was at 5.65%. That's pretty high. And prime rate, so we all follow these variable rate mortgages, that was at six and a quarter. So those are pretty high rates back then. So they brought, they, we've learned our lesson. They brought the rates up too aggressive back then. And then we saw the crash of 2008. And that's, that, even that the rates coming down didn't stimulate the home buyer. So we came out with a 40 year amortization. And there was even a no money down mortgage in 2007. <laughs> so you, we could put no money down in 2007. Look at those actions to, to respond to create a housing market for first time home buyers. So this shared equity, it just raises a lot of questions with something we haven't seen. Uh, as much experience with before. Right. But in the end, the design is to make it easier for first-time homebuyers, right? That's the ultimate goal here? Absolutely it is. That's that's the incentive for it, and that's what they're trying to do. And, and as you can tell, there's more of an incentive for a first-time home buyer to build, which is interesting, because building costs are up quite a bit over the years. And so you get the 10% incentive if you're building a home and a 5% if it's existing. So that's an interesting concept, too. Yeah. I mean, if you look at that, that usual path or maybe the, you know, a, a common path where someone is able to buy, say, a, a townhouse or a condominium mm. of some kind, and then you move into maybe a little bit of a fixer-upper, and from there you sell, and, and eventually you might get to building. But to have the incentive at the build first, uh, that, that does sound a little strange. That's a pretty big leap, and that's why if we, if we saw the 30 amortization with it, maybe this, yes, we get this younger gen into the bigger house. You're right. We skip that starter home that our grandparents taught us about. We don't buy that home, and then three to five years later, we kind of relocate again. We've skipped that step, but with a 30 amortization, it could allow uh, you know, advisors like us to help spread out the plan, but get them in the house, create longer-term plans, per se. Michael Mullis, president of Mortgage Teacher, joining us. Michael, for first-time homebuyers, a lot of times, you know, you're, you're brand new to it. A lot of these terms are, are a little strange. What do you recommend for somebody who might be trying to scrimp and save and put together what they think is a down payment? What do you recommend they do in order to be fully ready to jump in? Uh, there's, of course, there's the plug on Mortgage Teacher, but there's many like ours that are sitting down and pre-planning and educating that I find that is more valuable than anything. For example, your credit score. Now, that's one thing to prepare ahead enough, for example, six months, to make sure everything's in line. So sit down with an advisor. As far as saving up for the money, the reason I said that is because there's strategies in place. For example, right now, with the right advising, you could get, for example, say you don't have a down payment, but you could get an RRSP loan for $10,000. That has to sit in your RSPs for 90 days. Now, we've passed the deadline for that. I get it. But that's why I mean there's certain windows of time you could do this and help create a down payment with, with your RSPs because as a first-time home buyer, you can borrow against your RSPs for a down payment. So if you get an RSP loan, they have to sit in there for 90 days. Now you have an instant kind of access to the RSPs for a down payment. So there's creative ways with you know investors and, and mortgage brokers as such working together to help you kind of create plans like that to maybe get in the house a little sooner. Hey, well, I mean, that's that's the idea. Ultimately, we still need people to continually buy houses, even 200 years from now. We're, if, if we're living in houses, if we're not living in that space station that's going to be circling the moon, <laughs> we're going to need to do this. So, yeah, this, this is great that it's being addressed. But in summary, you say there's still a lot of question marks that need to be answered as we move forward for Ontario. 
Well, I mean, Mike, you're one of our better advisors here in the city. And let's be honest, look at all the changes you and I have talked about in mortgages just over the last few years. Yeah. So for large institutions to keep up and keep everybody educated, it, it's pretty tough. So we're really happy to have, you know, kind of conversations like this in the city of London and help out the locals. Well, hey, thanks for having the conversation with us. All the best today. You too, Mike. That is Michael Mullis, president of Mortgage Teachers. So shared equity mortgage, there are some things in there, but as Michael pointed out, the amortization was a big incentive last time around. They chose not to increase the amortization this time around, and instead there are little loan incentives. Will those work? There are incentives to get people into new houses. Can you imagine? I mean, you know, this almost seems to fit some of the things we get talking about on London Live with regard to that next generation. I want them to run the world, but at the same time, they live in a world, let's call them 20-somethings and 30-somethings sometimes, where you know their world is number one. Their world is a TV show. Their world is front and center in their mind. So maybe to them it's, yeah, build a house? Absolutely. I would do that. Have we gone to that point where we don't have to think starter home? Where you don't have to say, wait a minute, I've got to build up some equity, and then I make my move. Instead, you go, well, you know, these incentives are here. If I can take advantage of those, I can skip having to do the starter home and all the painting that comes with it and the flooring that comes with it. You know, we have a young couple that moved in next door to us. They've been amazing in what they've done to the home. It's just, it's phenomenal. And that's the way that they've chosen to go. So I thought, yeah, that's... That's still kind of a way to go. Yeah, you go in and with a can of paint and some elbow grease, you get that job done and you you fix it up. And next thing you know, you're selling it for a profit. And you're moving into a big home and the family and the dog. And I thought that was the way that it would go. But will these incentives change that? As Michael says, there are a lot of question marks. We'll peek over to B.C. maybe next week and see how shared equity mortgages have worked in British Columbia. We'll put that on the to-do list here on London Live. Up next, we're going to give you a chance to do something. Win night's tickets. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Anybody want to go and see some OHL playoff hockey? We have tickets for you to go and see the London Knights as they begin the playoffs against the Windsor Spitfires tomorrow night. The way it's going to work, tomorrow night is game one at Budweiser Gardens, and then Sunday is game two at Budweiser Gardens. Now, we have tickets for game two. That is Sunday afternoon, so game two. We have a pair of tickets right now. We'll open up the phone lines because this will be a phone contest. 519-643-2222 if you want to win those tickets. We have a fairly easy skill-testing question to go along with it. But 519-643-2222, phone lines are open right now if you would like to win tickets to go and see the London Knights and the Windsor Spitfires on Sunday afternoon at Budweiser Gardens. Here is the skill-testing question. The London Knights, the last time they won the Memorial Cup, got that test that you sometimes need very early on in the playoffs. They were playing the Owen Sound attack, and they were losing the series. After they turned things around, they would go on and win 17 consecutive games on their way to winning the Memorial Cup. 
But what was the score or what was the series at against Owen Sound before they reeled off 17 consecutive victories? We go to the phones right now. Brent, what was that series at before the London Knights started winning and just never stopped? Brent, can you hear us okay? Yep, yep. Is it so is it two nothing? It was not to nothing. You are very close. Thanks for playing. Give us a call back. 519-643-2222. What was the series at? And we now know it wasn't two to nothing when the Knights began to battle back. What was it when things, you know what? Hang on. Hang on just a second. Because I have this in my head, but I want to, I want to make sure here just because all of a sudden I'm I'm doubting myself and I'm thinking, wait a minute, is Brent actually completely right? So let me uh, let me take a second and look this up because in my mind it wasn't two to nothing because the series started in London. The Knights were not number one; they had lost out to the Erie Otters, so they were not number one overall, not number one going into the playoffs, but. They started here in London, and okay, all right, all right, I, I was I was okay. All right, what was the series at when all of a sudden the Knights turned and won 17 games in a row? Victor, it wasn't 2 nothing. What was it? Victor, can you hear us all right? Oh, oh yeah, I can hear you, yeah. Okay. 3-1. Three to one, you say? No, I'm sorry, not three to one. Five one nine six four three twenty two twenty two. Milton, we know it's not two nothing. We know it's not three one. What was the series at when the Knights turned things around? It was three nothing. Three nothing. No, I'm sorry, it wasn't three nothing. We're getting just about every guess we can possibly get. All right, five one nine six four three twenty two twenty two. Jared, what was the series at? We know, and I'm going to recap it. We know it wasn't two to nothing. We know it wasn't three nothing, and we know it wasn't three to one. For Jerry, yes, two to one. Two to one. You are exactly right. Are you able to go to the game on Sunday? I am so. You will be there. Let's get some information from you. Hang on just a second. Yeah, I had to double-check that for a second. The Knights won the first game 4-1. to one. That made it one nothing Knights. And then the second game, Owen Sound came back 1-2 to nothing. And then all of a sudden the Knights started to turn things around and ended up going on an absolute run. And it was 2-1 and ended up winning a total of 17 consecutive games and uh it was uh it was a pretty wild finish so congratulations jared's off to the game and i want to take a second and just talk about the one game winner take all because the one game winner take all is on display in march madness we need more of this in sports and here's why and you can go back to something that happened this week believe it or not in kamloops british columbia there was a play-in game in junior hockey, and there's a really telling picture of this. It's a pretty simplistic picture, but a play-in game because in junior hockey, you can't be eliminated mathematically. So what has to happen is you have yourself a uh, one game, and the winner goes on to the playoffs, and, and the, the loser obviously has their season end. That's why there's a tiebreaker in the Memorial Cup. But in Kamloops... 
the Kamloops Blazers and the Kelowna Rockets had to play this one-game playoff. Tickets haven't been selling great in Kamloops this year. They've been okay. You know, they've been on the cusp of making the playoffs. They've been all right. Not exactly a sellout. Hours and hours before the game, somebody printed off a sign that said, Sold Out, and posted that right at the ticket window. And from there, that kind of kicked off a run that Kamloops went on later that day that won the game, made the playoffs, but they sold that out. And the point is, if we had more of these, you have that kind of interest. Baseball has created it. Hockey needs to do this. I don't care about an 82-game schedule. Baseball does it with 162. If you don't want to be in the one-game playoff, it's easy. Be better. Be better. But these draw attention. March Madness draws attention because it's one loss and you are out. And they proved it this week in Kamloops, British Columbia. Sold out. Nice little sign. And they went on and, and celebrated later on that night in Kamloops. They make the playoffs. The Rockets are out. And the playoffs get underway tonight in the OHL. Knights and Windsor tomorrow and Sunday at Budweiser Gardens. There are some great tickets available. So if you did not win, then get on the phone and get yourself some of those tickets and get yourself down to Budweiser Gardens tomorrow or Sunday. We will talk more in just a moment. There was a very interesting article that came out from Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. And it continues a bit of a discussion about the London Knights, but about producing players for the National Hockey League. If you want to take pride in your hometown team, you're going to get a chance to do that in a moment. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We get all kinds of measuring sticks in life. They start pretty early. When you get a report card for the first time, you get that in junior kindergarten still? I think you get a note home. At least a, a report of some kind. I don't think it has subjects. And then more report cards come. And more report cards. And sometimes you even get report cards in life. Somebody does a survey about you. You know, whether you work in the restaurant industry, that may happen. Or, you know, there are, there are different ways. You know, politicians get it. They get votes. And you're always being graded in that way. If you can avoid it, hey, that's fantastic for you. Now, when it comes to a hockey team, you can usually be graded on wins and losses. That's the easiest way to do it. But there are other ways, especially when your hockey team is a developmental team. The London Knights have been graded, and they've been graded by statistics put together by Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. He covers the NHL draft, covers the Leafs and Marlies as well, and is part of a growing stable of reporters at The Athletic that really digs into a lot of things in hockey. And one of the things that Scott Wheeler has come out with is games played by players coming from any developmental team in the world. So anything not named a National Hockey League team or an American Hockey League team. So the London Knights, for example, U.S. National Development Team program, European teams. And he's looked at those games played and he's counted them up for the last 16 years. And he has found that the London Knights have accounted for 10,343 games played. 10,343. Kitchener is second on that list at 5,000. 733. So you have 10,000 plus, and the next one down is 5,000 plus. And everybody is after that. 
the Knights number one by a whole lot. So we thought it'd be nice to talk with Scott Wheeler about how he came up with all of this, and he joins us now. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Fantastic. How long did it take you to crunch all of these numbers? There are a lot of numbers here. Well, it's kind of a little bit of a funny story. I actually had someone reach out to me on Twitter and send me a direct message saying that they'd been crunching the numbers and that London was way ahead of everyone else in terms of games played, et cetera, points, et cetera. So um, I, I just kind of did some following up on, on some work that someone else had already done, did some tinkering with some of the spreadsheets, pulled a lot of the data, and then kind of just uh, arranged it in a way that made sense and that allowed sort of the Excel spreadsheet to do its magic and, and pull the insights that I was looking for. So um, certainly at the front end, there was a good chunk of work, but once you get things up and moving and you've got all the data pulled from HockeyDB and you've kind of crunched the numbers, after that you're just pushing buttons and, and seeing what it spits out. Well, it's pretty amazing that you were able to do that over a 16-year span. Let's talk about what you did find out in all of this. You did mention the London Knights. We mentioned them off the start. But what else stood out to you when you looked at those numbers and when data started coming flying at you? Well, there were a few things that leaked out to me. I, I think the first thing that really caught my eye, frankly, wasn't even the NHL results, which made up the bulk of my analysis in terms of which NHL teams have drafted the best and worst over the last 15 years, but was actually some of the junior insights instead. And uh, obviously everyone knows that the London Knights are kind of a historic, uh, historically successful at the very least program, and, and that was kind of borne out in, in these numbers. And I was expecting them to be near the top, but I, quite frankly, I thought that the National Development Program would, would be number one, and, and they ultimately ended up number three. And then the gap between London and everybody else was so pronounced um, and, and such a wide gap that it really struck me that way. There, there are certainly some flaws in the data set. The data set pulls, just to explain a little bit further, the, the data set pulls the, the name of the team that the player was drafted on. So in, in a lot of cases, you've got a player like John Tavares, who quite frankly was developed in in Oshawa, but was ultimately drafted out of London, and and the London Knights get credit for that. And and then on the flip side, the National Development Program, when they have a lot of their players like an Austin Matthews go to Europe, or a Charlie McAvoy, or the Kachuk brothers who go on and play college a year earlier, or, or, or any of those other players who depart for other programs, the National Development Program ultimately doesn't get credit for a lot of those guys. So there are certainly some, some minor flaws in, in what the data was able to pull, but uh, ultimately, the, the gap that the London Knights had established for themselves in terms of games played by their NHL graduates over the last 16 years is so pronounced that it really is remarkable. Yeah, the John Tavares numbers will not be skewing that too too much. Then and that and so if we have it, if we have it to an understanding, would it be the final team that they played from the team that they were they were drafted by an NHL team when they were with this team? That's the one that that shows up in the data. Yes. Okay. Correct. Excellent. We're talking right now with Scott Wheeler, who you can read at The Athletic, covers the NHL drafts, covers the Leafs, covers the Toronto Marlies. I don't know when you sleep, because uh, there's always a lot to write about all of those things. The draft never stops. I mean, how, how far do you go mm-hmm. after one draft before you start looking ahead to the other one, or are you kind of looking too ahead already? Yeah, it's really two or three drafts ahead. Normally, it's kind of all simultaneous. I mean, the, the draft year that you're within, it kind of 
becomes your tunnel vision and you can get a little bit too focused on it. But in the process of watching all of these teams, most teams have players who are available for the next draft after that and sometimes even the draft after that in, in some cases. So oftentimes you're getting viewings very early on of a lot of these kids. I also tend to watch a good chunk of sort of minor midget AAA hockey, whether it's the OHL Cup or some of the stories I've done over the years on players like Quentin Byfield, and I'm currently working on something on Shane Wright. So that kind of thing allows you to get to know these kids three or four years out from their draft in some cases. But uh, obviously the, the focus in a year like this is, is right now on the 2019 draft, and uh, it's going to be an interesting year in Vancouver to see how it all shakes out at the end of June. Well, before we let you go, maybe let's go to the world of National Hockey League fans and some of the success the teams have had through the NHL draft since 2003. If someone were to ask the question, okay, which team has the most total points out of drafted players since 2003, uh, how many people do you think, Scott, would say, oh, that's the Boston Bruins, yeah. Uh, probably not a lot. I suspect if I asked that question to the average fan, they would probably come up with a, a team like the Pittsburgh Penguins, thanks, to, thanks in large part to the massive points that Sidney Crosby and Chris Letang and company have been able to put up. And certainly Pittsburgh factored in high in, in the analysis and in the insights that I was able to draw. But uh, the Bruins uh, are kind of the anomaly. A lot of the teams at the top were teams that have drafted kind of first overall talents who've carried the load. Uh, and, and the Bruins are one of those teams that has just never really missed in the last 10, 15 years on their top picks. And certainly they benefited from drafting a player like Tyler Sagan and the Phil Kessel, who's put up huge numbers and were kind of can't miss prospects in the top five. But they've also hit on a number of players from David Pasternak in the late first round to uh, Dougie Hamilton was another player who they hit on, who they haven't, obviously they didn't retain, but certainly they got credit for drafting. Um, Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand it wasn't a first-round pick, so they, they've had some, some real home runs kind of in the late first round and then into the second, third, fourth rounds, and that is ultimately what determines a, a, and separates a great team at the draft from a team that kind of is mediocre. We're talking with Scott Wheeler, Leafs and Marlies reporter and National Prospects NHL draft writer at The Athletic. You have read him all over the place for a long time now. This is a must-read if you're a junior hockey fan or any hockey fan that likes to look back and see drafting success in the National Hockey League. Okay, one last thing for all of the Leaf fans and all of the Red Wings fans that we have in this area. Um, I... I don't know if I want to ask this outright. How have they done in their drafting since 2003 when it comes down to points by drafted players? Well, I'll say this. Both Detroit and Toronto were in the bottom third of the results. And Toronto, that's certainly driven by just extremely poor drafting over the years. They've begun to correct that in recent years by hitting on players like Mitch Marner and and William Nylander, eighth overall as well. But uh, certainly before that, they, they really struggled. They they didn't really hit on any of their major picks. They dealt away a lot of their top picks as well, including to the to the Boston Bruins. Um, so it, it's been a, a struggle for the Leafs. And then Detroit it, is driven primarily by their success. The teams that are most successful struggle at the draft a little bit more. And obviously the Red Wings have done an unbelievable job kind of developing and 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 building out their prospect pool over the last sort of two, three decades, which has led to their sustained success over the years. But 
certainly there have been some some misses as well, and, and it's obviously considerably harder to hit and to draft sort of high point value players, which are the players that showed up in my data set um, when you're looking at drafting in those sort of late first round every year. Well, Scott, keep up the great work, and thanks so much for some time today. Thanks. Scott Wheeler with The Athletic. So that's how he got the numbers on the draft and the Knights and those sorts of things. In a moment, why don't we dig into the Knights organization a little bit and just look at what allows you to do that. How are they this far ahead of everybody else? That's next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Now on London Live, we get an opportunity to go in-depth into the London Knights organization. We just talked with Scott Wheeler from The Athletic, whose latest piece has looked at a number of things stemming from the National Hockey League draft. And the idea that over the last 16 years, a certain team developing players has kind of been head and shoulders above everybody else. Let's look at the games played in the NHL in the last 16 years by players coming out of the London Knights. 10,343. Next on the list, a very good organization, the Kitchener Rangers, 5,733. That is a massive discrepancy. Now, as Scott said, it was the player and the team that he was playing with when he was drafted that went into the data. So he said there there is some margin of error, but even though Oshawa had a great job in developing John Tavares for the first three years of his four-year OHL career, the London Knights would get those numbers. That's not going to change this completely. So joining us right now is Knights Associate General Manager Rob Simpson to kind of look at this because I want to lay it out that Mark and Dale Hunter are not in it to to get numbers like this, 10,343. They're in it to develop players, to, you know, to, to develop the best team they can, and they're as modest as they come. Rob, what is it like watching them go to work and, and working with them and doing this job that now creates these kinds of results? I think it's a great, great thing to be able to be a part of. It's a great thing to be able to learn from, uh, from two you know, like you mentioned, Mark and Dale that have been doing it since day one, since they've bought the team. And, and as you mentioned, they're very modest about the program they've developed and built here. And it's, uh, you're, you're really, a lot of times you sit back and you really look at what they do and it's, it's searching for every possible way to try to develop the players. I think when we bring players in to be London Knights, you know, we promise their parents, we promise the players, we promise the agents that we're going to do everything possible to develop them on the ice and off the ice as well, too, uh, to be professionals, to hopefully be one day NHL players, but also to be good people and have a future and be successful in whatever they end up doing. And I think this shows in in the numbers of game played and, and players that have been with London Knights and moved on and had great NHL careers. Rob, you mentioned something really interesting because as much as you can learn from the coaching and as much as, sure, you, you kind of know what it what it takes to get to the next level, it's not easy to do that. The NHL is not an easy league to make, but the off-ice idea in all of this, because it's one thing to have the skill. Skill only goes so far once you get to the NHL, right? Because everybody's so good. Yeah, everybody has the talent when you get there, and there's probably you can go through the American League even and see a lot of players that have a ton of skill and probably should be in the NHL, but they're missing certain components or different things in their game that are going to allow them to play. And 
a lot of that is understanding, you know, what you need to do off-ice training-wise, uh, being a student of the game and understanding how you can get better, even if it's 2% better in your skating or 2% better in your shot. I think what our coaching staff also does a great job uh, of teaching the players off-ice is how are you going to be successful in the NHL? What role can you fill? How can you help the team up there be successful? How are you going to be able to to play a system or be able to work within different systems for different coaches and what strengths in your games are going to allow you to do that and getting a player to understand those and then getting them to buy into it, which is always the toughest part. London Knights Associate General Manager Rob Simpson joining us. And that's a really interesting point because when a player gets to the National Hockey League, you would think, okay, well, they're they're just one of the best of the best. Yeah, they'll, they'll just be there because they're that good. How many times do you see a player who scored all kinds of goals in junior, all of a sudden he's one of the best defensive players in the NHL when you didn't, you didn't know that would happen? And sometimes you have to be a completely different player from what you were in junior. How do you... How do you tell a guy that who's maybe 17, 18, 19 years old who isn't ready to think big picture in order for that player to understand big picture? Well, you're just trying to teach them to be adaptable and to be able to play. I I don't think you're necessarily saying, hey, you're going to be a checker at the NHL level. You're teaching them those skills and those abilities on the defensive side of the puck or the offensive side of the puck so that when they get there, it, you know, they've already learned these skills and these traits, and they just have to be willing to adapt, and that comes down to the character of the player, which is also a big factor in what we try to draft consistently. I think, uh, you know, you're not going to take a 17-year-old guy and tell him that he's going to be a checker, but a, an interesting thing for, you know, people to do would be go through the NHL and look at guys that you consider to be checkers or penalty killers or role players in the NHL. And oftentimes when you look up those players online and what their statistics were in junior or in different leagues, you'd be surprised how many of them had 50 goals a year or, or put up 100 points in the OHL or, you know, were offensive stars, but they had to be adaptable to change their game. And I think that's, again, where, you know, Dale and Dylan and Rick and, and the staff here, you know, work every day to try to get players to understand that, that you may be a half-wall guy in the OHL, but that may make you have enough skill to be a checker in the NHL. Well, the entire organization can bask in these numbers because uh, that just puts everything number one. This is the London Knights against the world, and they have over 10,000 games played in the National Hockey League. And Kitchener, again, an organization that has done a magnificent job developing players with 5,733. Everybody else is back in behind that. Rob, thanks so much for the time today. No problem, Stubbsy, anytime. Rob Simpson, London Knights Associate General Manager. So those numbers, again, if you missed it, coming from Scott Wheeler of The Athletic. Interesting thing to check out from Scott Wheeler in The Athletic. Let's take a final break. We're back to close out London Live next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We started off the show talking about how you can Google Florida man and your birthday, and it's kind of your own Florida man story. Uh, didn't find a Florida man today, necessarily. Found a West Warwick, Rhode Island man. Seems that this guy and his buddy were uh, involved in a game of pool, 
night of drinking, and what do you know, turned into a violent attack with a crowbar. It seems that one friend pulled the crowbar out of his pajama pants and hit the other man with it. And police ended up being called. There was somebody else upstairs. And the one guy had to be taken to the hospital, crowbar to the head. And the other guy in the pajama pants came by, still wearing the pajama pants, to see him in the hospital. And pulled out the crowbar a second time and attempted to hit him. Had to be restrained by doctors. If you have friends who have the ability to carry a crowbar in their pants, you need new friends. We are out of time. That's a Rhode Island man. Beware that state, too. Thanks to Andrew Graham for all of his help today. News is on the way next with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.